A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is World's Greatest Con. I'm Brian Brushwood. If I teach them two, three of those methods, they're going to think they know exactly how something's done. And a little bit of information is a bad thing. It can be dangerous. It's it's the con, you know, it's the sting. Uh, you think that you are following one story only to realize you're not following that. and People are a couple steps ahead of you. Home every day, you know, you've got a secure income. I do a gig. It's like, where's my next gig coming from? There is a little bit, and, and I've never admitted this before, There was a little bit of jealousy on my part. When we were in Project Alpha, we were a team. Well, that one, that one hurt a little bit. There, there was a little sting. Not that I'm bitter or anything. How, how satisfied are you guys with the legacy of Project Alpha? Does it feel like it accomplished as much as you had hoped? So I got something, but I'm almost afraid to say it because I could possibly be sued. Have, have you guys ever considered performing together again or doing Oh, no. A- no, 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 oh, no. Really? <laughs> I will not. I will not ever perform with this monkey again. <laughs> Yuri Gala, the king, came on stage, and he literally looked down at us, and he said, these kids can do things that I can't. The world's greatest con. This episode of World's Greatest Con brought to you by, you know what? Actually, let's start here. Heads up, gang. Story matters. You know it and I know it. That's why we're here right now. And that's why you need to go to Amazon.com and grab yourself a copy of The Girl Beneath the Sea by Wall Street Journal bestselling author Andrew Maine. Picture this. You're Sloan McPherson, a Florida police diver. Your assignment? To recover a body from the dark and murky depths of the intercoastal waterway. But when you get there, you're stunned to discover that the victim is no stranger and the twists only start there. The Girl Beneath the Sea is a masterclass in suspense, expertly weaving together underwater adventure with heart-pounding murder mystery. And once you are hooked, don't worry. It's only book one of the Underwater Investigation Unit series that also includes Black Coral, Sea Storm, and Sea Castle. If you love suspense, if you know how good Andrew Maine's razor-sharp writing is, and you love a compelling cast of characters, this book is an absolute must-read. 
Head on over to Amazon.com to get your print or ebook copies of The Girl Beneath the Sea. Or if you prefer to listen to your books like I do, head on over to Audible.com. That's The Girl Beneath the Sea from Andrew Main, the best-selling author of the Theocrane Naturalist series, available now at Amazon.com and Audible.com. We are live right now at Show Creator Studios in Las Vegas, Nevada with Banachek and Mike Edwards. Uh, Banachek, do you remember the first time we talked about even covering this story on World's Greatest Con? Uh, I, uh, World's Greatest Con, yes. I know we have talked about it in the past before we talked about World's Greatest Con. Um, right. But I do remember you calling me and see if I, I would even have an interest. And I remember telling you, I definitely have an interest, but the person you're going to have to convince is the man across the table from me, Mike. Well, and, and so you and I have known each other for, for decades, but Mike was, was an unknown factor. Uh, how did you react when Banachek first forwarded uh, our contact information in the pitch? Frankly, I was highly skeptical. Yeah? We've gone through this multiple times with multiple people in terms of TV shows, movies, other things along that. And I kind of thought, all right, here we go again. Then I started doing a little research and really like what you guys do. And uh, I have to say that I'm very, very impressed with what you guys have done so far in the first initial episodes. Was there a hesitation to revisit all that, knowing how many times you guys have tried to get the Project Alpha story out there in some kind of narrative format? Uh, that, oh, that, that here we go again. Like, like, no, 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 no. I absolutely love talking about myself. <laughs> and I know I, you know, very often I will stop and tell people, you know, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? <laughs> uh, but it's, it, it's good to tell it again. I think what you guys have done is, has taken a fresh look at it, but you've also gotten behind the scenes. You've gotten behind um, the initial story that was out there that everybody saw in the press or have seen, you know, even in an honest liar, et cetera, et cetera. You guys really got, I think, to the heart of the matter. There was a moment in the interview we did with you where we asked, like, what celebrity uh, Banachek reminded you of the first time you saw him. And you said uh, Horshack. Uh, we From didn't get the back, to ask Banachek what celebrity, what image came to mind when you first met Mike. Be careful. <laughs> I, I didn't really have one. It's just keep in mind at that time I was very insecure. So anybody looked better than me. <laughs> you know, anybody seemed better than me. And here comes this law student, you know, dressed nice and everything. And it was just. I knew he came from a different world than I did, but I never have ever judged people based upon their looks, what they were, how they are. I don't, I get to know the person and the human being. And right away, Mike and I hit it off right away. Well, and, and there's a question you asked Mike a second ago, I'd like to address from my point of view as well, sure. about the amount of times we have told this story. What I find really interesting, because when Mike and I get together, it's not for a long period of time. It's snippets. It's almost like with Project Alpha, right? We flew in, we're there for a weekend, and we're gone. And right. when you and I meet, it's a day or two. You come to Houston, you're there for a business deal, and you're gone. So I find it really interesting that even to this day, and even on this project, there are things I still find out from Mike's point of view that I didn't know. 
because what I was doing was getting information from Randy through the years about Mike, especially in the early days of Project Alpha. Like for the longest time, I thought that the only thing Mike knew how to do when it came to psychic phenomena type stuff was bend a key because that's all that Randy had told me. I didn't know that Mike had this whole background and he was able to go in and fool students because I had done the same thing. I'd go in and I'd use the name Sean Everts, which is an anagram of my name, Steve Shaw. And I'd come in as if I was a genuine psychic. I would then say, how many people here believe, you know, that what I did was real and this was for students. And they would raise their hands, you know, and they'd say, you know, we believe it's real. Most of the kids would. And then I would say, well, you know, how many of you think it's not? And I would ask those kids, why do you think it's not real? And they say, because my dad told me, because this person told me, because I read it in a book. And I'd say, you're right. And they'd give me a big smile on their face, but I'd say for the wrong reasons. For the reasons, wrong reasons, yeah. Right? Um, and, and I would go into why those were the wrong reasons, because it was all secondhand information, just like the, for the same reason that I believed back in the day, secondhand information. So we had both done the same kind of things. I'd been in my class, I have an article uh, from the Hiller where I was performing for them in high school during that time. So it was really, it's always been interesting to see those similarities that Mike and I both have. And I keep finding out more and more and more. And the brain is a very strange thing. This happened so long ago for us. So sometimes you tell a story and it changes slightly and it changes slightly. And that new thing that you actually tell becomes your reality. So Mike, tends to keep me in check on those things. Now, um, there was one that you said uh, the other day. What was it? It was, oh, with the rice. Right. Yeah. So when we talked about the bell jar, right, and putting Mm -hmm. the piece in, the idea of actually putting it in crooked was mine because I was doing it, and then I told Mike about it. And then when they put the the foil over it, um, in my head, it was like I came to actually putting foil in it. I knew I wanted to put something in it, and it was foil because that's what we used. So all I remembered was the final result, right? Turns out I suggested to Mike that I put rice in there, which I have no clue why I would have said rice, but it was probably the only thing available at that We time. were actually at Peter Phillips's home oh, staying yeah. there, and there was a box of things that they were using, and inside of that was the bell jar of which the base had been wrapped in uh, aluminum foil. And Banachek says, we need to put something in there so that we don't have to keep looking like we're screwing around with the bell jar to get it to seat right. Um, put like a little grain of rice or something just underneath enough to get this, a crack. just so that you get the crack, but under the foil. And immediately, I always think, how can you get caught? And so to me, I said, all we need to do is just take a little piece of the foil off the bottom and put that in there. At least if they notice it, it looks like it's just something that fell off of the base that right. they created. You don't have a foreign object inside of there. So when we do these interviews, these little things come to light because there's so much with Project Alpha. And it's great to find those little moments for me because it makes the story new and fresh in many ways. So one one moment that... Uh, I, I think both of you kind of glossed over. Uh, we, we get to the moment that you guys are driving the rental car and uh, Banachek is tearing stuff up, bending everything. Mike is uh, trying to draw ba- boundaries and be responsible. Uh, but but we don't we didn't really hear much about the moment before that, because both of you knew that Randy had arranged for somebody else to be there. And there had to be some moment 
that you met each other for the first time, I assume in the airport before you walked out, was, was there like significant glances or kind of a nod or, or how did that look? I thought he was a very pretty man. You saying whole shack is pretty? Seriously? Okay. Let me, let me, let me go back and clarify the horse shack thing. And I told you when we were recording it, I was, oh, no, I was going to regret that. I yeah. was going they to regret it. purposely left out yeah. the second part of that. And that, and that you were going to make me pay for the next several years. And by the way, just a second the record straight project alpha started 42 years ago holy moly that's how wow. long we've known each other we're old uh yeah or you are uh you're <laughs> older you're older than I, I am remember that um so with the horseshack thing it was because of the coats that he would wear he was always wearing something different that looked more like uniforms or costumes than really clothing yeah. and it was just uh, and I think at the time it might have been an oversized army jacket or something along those it lines. It was probably just, a, I, I was hiding my skinny body because okay. I was embarrassed by my skinny body. But yeah, when you tell you say costumes, I remember I worked for a security company and I came in that one. I didn't have clothes. So I came in my security outfit with everything. Yeah. And there I am. You know, well, That's like, amazing. Yeah. So, so that was the whole reason with that. Um, and, and the hair. And the hair. I had uh, dark hair puffy, and a lot of it. Lot and, of it yeah. So that was it. It was just do, purely visual. Do either visual. of you remember the first thing you said when you were in the car together alone? Do you guys remember <sighs> any kind of ground rules or, or did you bring up Randy immediately? Or? I, I, I think there was a couple of the little things that we discussed. Um, and, and really, let's go back to the airport because when we met there, Mike has a sarcastic sense of humor. I have a sarcastic sense of humor. And I think when two people with a sarcastic sense of humor say something to the other person and the other person laughs and comes back and that person says something, it's like, okay, we can be pals. Yeah. Some, if, you have a, if you have a sarcastic sense of humor and you say something to somebody and they get a little offended, you go, oh, well, you back off, right? So that bonded us almost immediately. And I think our first conversations were probably more along the lines, hey, do you think they have one-way mirrors? Do you think they have cameras they're going to leave Do you think on? we're being bugged right now? Yeah, do you think? Yeah, that, that, that kind of That was part stuff. of it. And, and my thought was there could be something in the car, a recording device, a tape right. recorder, something along those lines. Um, but I went back and I thought, no, wait a minute. There was such a fiasco trying to get the rental cars set up and who is going to drive that and who is going to drive uh, Phillips's car that I thought, no, he couldn't have, he couldn't have staged that. Um, that we, we also knew Phillips was a believer right from the moment. Absolutely. We met him. Like from well, the moment I don't, we no, met him. Let's also remember, That's true. I'd already met him. I'd already had dinner with him and a bunch of his friends. The assistant to the mayor of St. Louis was there. Um, and so that was kind of my, uh, dry run with them was bending keys specifically after dinner at the table, which really kind of cemented uh, Phillips's belief that, you know, I truly had psychic That was powers. one of the moments that Phillips kept coming back to was when Michael originally bent a key for him. And I think in his mind, and I can't speak for what's in his mind, but I think in his mind, he knew at that moment he had found a genuine psychic. Everything he believed he had found it himself in Michael. So it was already decided. Everything else just was just, dotting the just, I's, crossing it, the it, T's. It's just proving getting it, it on film. It's yeah. proving Get it to the rest of the world. That right. was his job in his head. I think I'm going to prove this to everybody else. I'm going to show them my experience. Now, in episode four, there is mm. a part where you speak about Philip saying, we already realized two years ago that, you know, 
that we couldn't prove that they were psychic or that they weren't. And we kind of realized we weren't going to work with them anymore. And we kind of knew they weren't genuine. Um, I have a letter that he wrote to somebody else in it. And this was in November of 82. So before we'd actually revealed it, but after they'd stopped working with us in that letter, he says, I truly believe Mike Edwards bent a key in my hand without ever touching it. So if he says that we didn't believe him and now several months later and right before the reveal, he's already admitted to another colleague that he truly believes that I bent a key in his hand. On top of that, on top of that, when I got that phone call for them to say, when, when I, I say, well, what do you think? And they go, it can't be true. It basically can't be a hoax. Right. You wouldn't say that if you thought that we were not real. Right. You would say, well, we suspected you were hoaxing us. You you would start uh, uh, essentially putting your prediction in an envelope right then and there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'd actually come out and say, yeah, we were kind of getting suspicious because the more the controls were tightened, the less you guys could do, et cetera, et cetera. So part of what makes this project possible is the fastidious amount of collection of notes and research that you've done. Uh, uh, Mike Edwards kept receipts on everything. Uh, when, when was the moment you started doing that? And what, what was the initial reason when you were a young person and did it evolve over time? Uh, I, I think I was so, enamored with the idea of working with Randy and starting a project along these lines, that everything was a memento that I wanted to keep. I mean, I have, I have the original, uh, airline ticket that when I flew down to St. Louis, uh, on the very first time I have a handwritten note when Randy told me about you, Banachek, um, and where you were from, I have a copy of the note that I made. See, Michael had a home where he could keep all this. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> to where, it, and it actually said, because I didn't remember that you were in Pittsburgh. It, it actually says something along the lines of Steve Shaw in Boston, which. Boston? Yes. I was like, I don't know. East Coast. You know, I'm, I'm a kid growing yeah. up in Iowa. When you're in Iowa, yeah. it's all the same. I mean, it's all the same thing. But it was you a know. handwritten note from Randy. Or from, or Me. Yeah. I oh, was you, making you a note because remember. The week before you applied to the Mac Lab, I was at the Mac Lab yeah. and told them and mentioned your name that I'd seen you in a in an article or something, and they should probably reach out to you if they could find I think this it. was something that I didn't know yeah. until we did Honest Liar. You know, when right. I talk about finding out little bits and little gems of information, I had no idea that Mike had mentioned me to them. I was never right. told that. And yeah. uh, for, for the listening audience, An Honest Liar was the uh, documentary on James Randi uh, uh, that both of you are featured in, right? Yes, there's a whole segment on Project Alpha right. in that movie itself. Well, we like to think that it was a documentary was a- about <laughs> us, <laughs> you guys. of which James Randi co-starred. Barry, but- <laughs> Barry Sonnenfeld actually saw that movie. Um, and at the Telluride Film Festival, yeah, yeah. Uh, as we were getting an award at the Key West Film Festival right. for for the movie as well at the same time, and um, he bought our life rights for a small period of time because he wanted to make a movie about Project Alpha, but he wanted to use Aaron Sorkin. Problem was Aaron Sorkin, who's the creme de la creme of writers in Hollywood, 
he was busy on another movie and a couple other movies. And then by the time he got done, Barry was busy on a couple of other projects and it never came to fruition. So when Mike says we've been approached numerous times about our story and it's never come to fruition, really, we really have been approached probably, I don't know, maybe 40 times or somewhere probably. in there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we've let people take our life rights in the past. Um, and they sat in it for a year or so. And all they do, some of them, like one came back with a one pager that Mike and I could have done. <laughs> in about an hour's work. Yeah, in, a, in about an hour's yeah. work. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, one thing that happened when we listened to the interview, and, and it happened once with Banachek, uh, Justin and I heard something in the story that you told that instantly rang as human and true. And, you know, we met Mike for the first time the, a day or two later and heard his version and everything was exactly in parallel. Uh, ha- had anybody focused on, and maybe maybe we overstated it. We, we did our best to tell the story as we heard it from you guys, but it really did sound, as soon as we heard it, like a story of essentially two brothers coming together. Had anybody focused on that before? Or what was the previous versions of the story that people wanted to make? I don't think anybody's ever really focused on the the personal side of it. It's more been about the the experiment itself, but not the behind the scenes, not the personal enough, not not the brother, you know, the brothership that we have, if that's even a word. Um, it is and, now. And, <laughs> and not the way we actually really felt about the scientists over time. Um, and, and, you know, the conflict that we had going on, that's never been focused on, I think, like you have done. And you've really done justice to that in in, in this this podcast. Well, let, let's talk about some of the tricky spots that we didn't know, because as we're recording this, I think you guys have only heard the whole rough cuts of the first four episodes, maybe 48 hours ago or so. Um, the uh, uh, We were a little bit on pins and needles to send it over. Uh, some of the bold takes were focusing and projecting on the human aspect of things. And we really hoped that we could kind of skirt responsibility of making any kind of call about the James Randi of it all in episode four. Um, but but ultimately, where we ended up is here are two true facts, uh, or three true facts. James Randi is a phenomenal promoter. Simple stories are better than complicated ones. And it sucks to get pushed into the margins. And beyond that, that's, that's really all we can know on the outside. Um, how, how did that land with you guys? I have, again, copious note taker and letter writer and, you know, I guess. Uh, Spends a lot of time in the bathroom. Hoarder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote, I wrote a, a note to myself for my file in 1983, just after Project Alpha was revealed, that corrected a lot of the story that Randy was telling. Because he was telling it incorrectly, and like because, you said. And because you know uh, memories can drift over time. Absolutely right. One of the things that I've been accused of even in business is belaboring a point because if you tell me something that's incorrect, but you tell it multiple times, in your mind, you believe it. Yeah, right. And ultimately, that becomes the truth versus what actually happened. And all of this really started with me reaching out to Randy before we anybody knew about the Mac Lab. Uh, and that's one of the things we can talk about is when Randy gave his timeline and he talks about March of 79 and he read about the Mac Lab and he dispatched us. Did, I'm using air quotes. Yeah. Uh, do you remember? There where, was no press 
the Mac Lab didn't start, actually was not created until July or August of that year. So the timeline definitely couldn't have been correct. Absolutely right. It was, it was because I was doing uh, the lecture at the University of Northern Iowa, and I'm looking around through the National Enquirer and the Star and all those things, and I came across the article, and I changed what I was planning to do at UNI. And instead called Randy and said, hey, have you heard about this? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let me tell you, I'm going to use this lecture to actually work to get into the Mac lab because one will validate the other. Uh, Can we? Oh, go ahead. I just want to say one thing on that. There was also um, Randy was writing. uh, Was it? Uh, Conjurers or Magicians in the Laboratory. It's a book, right? That he was in the process of writing before he passed. And I think the book's going to get finished at some point. A Magician in the Laboratory. Magician in the Laboratory. And he did reach out to us and said, hey, and I think it was because we had corrected Randy on a few things through the years. You know, we started getting to the point where it's like, hey, let's, it's time to correct some of these things. And he listened and uh, he reached out to both of us. He says, hey, can you take a look at this and correct any, he, he literally did ask us to correct any mistakes and Mike was the first one to come back with uh, a lot of corrections. And then I came back with some corrections and corroborated some of the stuff that Mike had said as well. Um, and I'm sure Randy, I'm not sure if he made those changes or not, because I've never seen the final. I did see a reap uh, or a yeah. uh, uh, second draft of it where he incorporated a lot of them. Yeah. 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 I, I, Randy had no idea how he met me. I mean, if you were to ever ask Randy, well, how did you, how did you come to know Mike? Right. And he would literally say, I'm not sure because he forgets that I call him. I called him on the phone well, and, and where you'd already imagine, visited yeah. with him and corresponded with him several years before. Yeah. Both Mike and I have always said, and I said it when I was interviewed with you before, and I, so far up to this point, it's not been in, mentioned in there, but it has in an indirect way. You said it yourself on there. But I want to, I really would like to say both Mike and I have always said Project Alpha would have never probably been in the media's eye as it was if it hadn't been for Randy. Yeah, guaranteed. Because. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he guaranteed. made Psychop, he put Psychop on the map. You know, it was Randy that was out there doing these things. So, I, you know, I do want to make that very, very clear. We fully understand that. Yeah, a, a absolutely integral to, yep. to the whole operation. Yes, absolutely. It took, it took all three of us to get it to be what it was. Can, can we talk, we had to speculate a little bit about what it was like after the big reveal, when you guys are kind of set free, we sort of muse about what, what creeping questions come into your mind. Like, Hey, what did we get out of all this? What, what was that moment like for both of you? Uh, one, it was relief for me Two, It was also what's next. What's going to happen? Uh, I think you allude uh, in the podcast earlier that Randy was always saying, hey, I've got this TV show or I've got this book opportunity or I've got this movie that people want to make, et cetera, et cetera. There was even talk of us um, developing a show for George Slaughter Productions, who did Magic or Miracle, about a kind of a weekly uh, you know, expose the cons sort of thing. Hell, I wanted to be the uh, a younger version of Geraldo Rivera at that time. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. yeah. I think we were supposed to be cartoons in that. Is that the one we were supposed no. to be cartoons? No, no. Okay, there was uh, one we were supposed to be cartoons, kid cartoons. That's awesome. Yeah. To me, that was cool. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, 
Uh, I don't think I've ever heard that. Yeah, we were supposed to be kid cartoons, and it's exactly yeah. the same pr- uh, premise. Is you know, well, that would Randy, have been easier because a, you know they kids. can make up whatever story they want to. And we we're exposing cons and uh, stuff like so that. So was I Shaggy and you were Scooby? Or <laughs> <laughs> so you guys were close when you were working together, but as we point out in the program, you guys aren't there all year. You're there for a few weekends per year over multiple years, 180 hours total. Uh, the whole approximately over the years. That's amazing. Over the years. Yeah. Uh, and so once that hub, once that excuse to see each other happens, how long do you guys go without communication? And what, what does your relationship look like during that time? Uh, Keep in mind, phone calls cost a lot of money back then. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, it's, it's funny because there was a lull in how we talked to each other or how often we talked to each other. You had gotten married. Um, I know at one point you were doing sales with some company. You were performing more. Um, I don't remember I doing sales. Um, I, and this yeah. was this was like back in '84. I might have been doing some performing a, for sale for companies okay. and selling their product trade on show. trade shows. Trade yeah. shows, yeah. That that's probably um, what I was doing. And so there was there there was a little bit of. Um, There was a little bit, and and I've never admitted this before, there was a little bit of jealousy on my part, especially around things that you got invited to from Randy, the William Shatner thing, you know, when you did Buried Alive, and that I didn't get invited into and included into. And it it was a little bit from my perspective of, Randy, you SOB, we put you on the map. And I just, it was kind of crickets. Um, but I was also early on in my professional career uh, working and, you know, was married shortly after that. A couple of years later, had a kid and second one followed. Um, so I, I didn't really get overly upset about it. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I sort of had a, it was weird. I had same kind of, not exactly the same thoughts in that, but like when we did the the, uh, uh, the search for Houdini special where I did the first Buried Alive, chained handcuff, locked in a glass coffin, nine feet in the ground, cover it with dirt. Um, they had Dean Gunnison on there. Right. And Dean Gunnison was doing all and the escapes. The, and he did the milk can. He did the milk can. When because Randy, Randy hurt himself. Hurt himself. Exactly yes. right. Exactly. So, yes. And I'm going... Why didn't Randy have me do the milk can escape? Because I was doing escapes too back then. You and it's funny because you started with escapes. Exactly I was doing right. escapes, and I was uh, like, "Wait!" And and the only reason they had me there was because they wanted to do a buried alive, and they knew that I had been doing one already at different clubs. But I think had I have not been doing a buried alive, and that's was something Houdini attempted, I would never have been on that show either. Right. I would have been there. Well, that one that one hurt a little bit. Yeah, there, there was imagine. a little sting. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I'm bitter well, or anything. Uh, I, I don't think we included it, but there was one moment that was just kind of a, a brief aside in your interview, Mike, where you were talking about uh, seeing Banachek's show and you used a version of the phrase, for, for the first time, you didn't even feel a twinge of jealousy. You were just happy for, for Banachek, which which implies that 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 maybe that there was some low-grade jealousy or maybe I'm reading too much into it. I, I, I think you're reading too much into it because... Um, we, it's interesting because when we were down in Key West, one of the longest times that he and I 
spent with each other since Project Alpha was, a week. was at the Key West Film Festival. And he and I are walking around the marina and we're probably grabbing beers or something there. Falling off golf carts. Uh, that, <laughs> that did happen. Yes. Uh, middle of the night. Yeah. People thought I was dead. Uh, <laughs> but then I got up and took a bow. And yeah, no, it was. Yeah, he I got did over get it. up and took a bow. Yeah, yeah. I rubbed dirt on it and I was better. Um, we were talking and it's funny because at the time I said, you know, I watched some of the things follow his social media and I miss rubbing elbows with people that we've known or that were, that were famous, et cetera, et cetera. And Banachek at the same time, this kind of made me realize the grass is always greener. He said, you know, at the Key West film festival, you have a ton of people from your, from your company here. And I've been sitting with you at these parties and people are constantly coming up and asking you about business ideas and this and that. And he said, I'm kind of envious of that. And so it was, it was a little, it, it was truly that grass is always greener on the other side. So from my perspective, I'm also not in competition with Banachek. So to me, to watch him and the show at the Strat and how he's, he's become far uh, more polished and confident than the 19 year old kid wearing the oversized coats that I first knew and, you know, playing harmonica in his room and deciding that I'm going to eat a sardine sandwich, <laughs> which, which to a kid from Iowa is like, what in the hell are you putting in your mouth? Uh- hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Well, so uh, at the Magic or Miracle press conference, you guys both performed. Was that the last time you both performed together? Wow. <laughs> I'm sure we had interviews after. Well, we had a lot of interviews we had after a lot that of interviews. we were doing things. No, we were actually on the Today Show together. Okay. Were, were you in right. Buffalo with me? I was. Yes, I was up yeah, in Buffalo. Maybe I did, we, That's yeah. when I met John Aston. We did stuff on stage. That's right. right. John Aston, who never yeah. gave his letters back. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Have, have you guys ever considered performing together again or doing Oh, no. A- no, 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 oh, no. Really? <laughs> I will not. I will not ever perform with this monkey again, <laughs> especially I, I, after June. What was June? Really? <laughs> I bring... 
I bring a bunch of my work people to your show. Yeah. Right? Yeah. One of the readings that you're giving on a guy, you're you're nailing everything, and then he stops and he points me out in the audience oh. and he says, You, sir, can you tell him what his horoscope sign is? Oh no. And I told him. <laughs> And it was wrong. <laughs> Let's just say without any, without okay, giving anything away. It was supposed to be away, right. It was supposed to be giving, right. Without giving, without giving anything he away thinks, thinks in I terms set, of, the me- of the method. He thinks I set him up. Right. I did not. Like, yes. I was as embarrassed as him because to me, it's an incredible moment when you can point to somebody else. You tell them what the zodiac sign right. is. I believe you know it. And they say it. And it's I look at the guy and I go, it. I go, me? Okay, well, <laughs> oh, I know, Sagittarius. The guy goes, nope, <laughs> <laughs> and he still to this day thinks I set him up. And I don't, purpose. I don't remember at the time, uh, but I, I think I said something about I'm not the mind reader. <laughs> Sit down, and later he calls me out. You know that guy I picked on earlier. That's Mike Edwards from Project Alpha, and yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I completely so, no. forgot about yes. that. Yes, yeah, I'm sure you did. That's actually it happened was. a couple of times out of probably a thousand shows. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, okay, he, yeah. So no, I will not work with him. <laughs> so, so uh, I, well, that's it's kind of like that's not what Mike does. Mike is an extreme professional in what he does now. Like, I, there's no way I could do what Mike does. And we talked about the grass being greener. And for me, it's like, wow, man, would it be kind of nice to have a, a job where you're home almost every day, although he does travel a lot, but home every day, you know, you've got a secure income. I do a gig. It's like, where's my next gig coming from? You know, I may be one paycheck from being under a bridge. And then a month later, I got a ton of money. Yeah, it's But I'm paying off all those other bills. I could, You know how it is as a performer. Oh, sure, yeah. You know exactly how you, it you, is. You measure your wealth in terms of months that you have gigs booked. Exactly right. Whereas Mike had security. You know, he had health benefits. He has all these things that come with a secure job. Paid and vacation. Paid vacation. <laughs> exactly right. I, you know, the last time I've had a, a real vacation... I've never had a real vacation that I can think of that I haven't actually had to work while I was there. And so for me, your life, it is that grass greener thing for for a long, long time, you know, and even a little bit, even today, I'm a little jealous of your life and, and the things that you've accomplished in your life and how successful you are. I have to keep proving my success is what I keep thinking in my head. Maybe I don't. And maybe that's a problem with me, but I feel like I have to keep proving my success with every venture I go on. I think one of the things and why we get along so well is we don't compete. Yeah, we never did. You know, we're not, we're both not trying to get the headlines. We're not trying to, who got this show, who got that show, et cetera. So I can sit back and absolutely cheer him on. And he also knows that I'm not above saying, hey, this is wrong on your website or this doesn't work or this is, and it's not done to be nitpicky. It's actually done because he's got a million things going on at any given time. It's just that little boost, just tweak this fine tune that. And I'm his biggest fan. When we were in project alpha, we were a team. It's nothing for me to bend something on the side and let it sit and point to it or give the little nod for Mike that he goes, okay, there's a bend in that, and he bends. It doesn't matter who get credit. Or Mike do the exact same thing for me. Set something up for me and say, hey, you know, I've been there too long, but 
that's you know that's bent over the, you know the, the, there was always this trying to help each other succeed it was about it was about the project it wasn't about he it wasn't about i it was about the entire project and that project was myself was him and was randy it's why we made those phone calls to randy it's why when randy said, you know saw the videotape and this isn't mentioned in the documentary when the mac lab made their original tape they sent it to randy because they wanted him to nitpick it. It's the only time they really, truly communicated with Randy and wanted some feedback. They're like, they thought, give us what they you thought got. thought he won't see that. Randy had to call. I don't know if it was a call or an email or whatever. They had to communicate. Yeah, it was an email during those days. Yeah, he had to communicate with both you and I in some form and say, it could have even just been regular mail. Listen, okay, how did this, how did you do this? 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 And we wrote back and told him exactly how we did every single one of those things on that video. So it wasn't a matter if he actually looked at the video ahead of time and knew how we were doing those things. And that's not to take anything away from Randy, but keep in mind, we would bend something and then maybe two, three hours later do the reveal of the bend. So it's impossible to see when you put the bend in or how you moved something. I'll give you a perfect example of that. But before I get onto that, I want to go back and say, with us and Project Alpha, it was mission over man. Yes. And that always came first. Let's make sure that we get this accomplished. And then we'll worry about kind of who gets credit. Yeah, everything happen. in service yeah. of the project. Absolutely right. But we would set things up. Perfect example. We were over at Peter Phillips's house one night. He had several people over. It's probably in the early days. And he had a this, Polaroid. This is before the actual Mac Lab was established. The, no, 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 no. The location was right, established. Right. Yeah. They had a uh, Polaroid camera. And one of the things that we would do is we would walk by this thing and at, grab it when nobody was looking and buy some lights, take a picture as we're moving the camera. So you got this swirl effect and set it down. And, and, then, and this was one of the Polaroids where it didn't automatically eject it. You could, you could pre-expose right. it. Exactly right. You could get a double exposure on it. Uh, and this was, this wasn't the type, like you said, that ejected. You had to pull it out, pull the film, uh, you know, separate it from the cover. Um, and so we would set that up even for each other. I'd go in at one point and I took a, a picture looking up at my face and set it down. Banachek held the camera several minutes later, took a picture of a woman and you could see my face kind of ghosted onto the shirt that she had. It's, on. A, it's almost like you're an old married couple doing the chores. It's, it's like I took out the garbage. I set up the camera. <laughs> I get to be the guy. <laughs> I get to be the guy. Uh, <laughs> we can both be guys now. <laughs> oh, that's true. Okay, there we go. We're enlightened. Um, well, so uh, tell me this. Uh, at, th at this point, Obviously, for this program, we condensed it to kind of four themes. We played a little bit fast and loose with what happened in what order so that uh, everything could could fit in four discrete episodes. But I would love to know anything that isn't in the program now that you guys want to clarify or uh, wish that you wish there was time to put in there or that maybe we had the wrong takeaway from. Inside of this with Berthold Schwartz, you mentioned he was taking pictures and uh, Banachek spat on the lens. Let's go back. He was not taking pictures. He had a movie camera. It was like a Super 8 video camera or film that he handed to Banachek. Which had his vacation footage on it up until that point. Right. 
So then Banachek takes it over and moves around. And that's when Banachek spat on the lens. From the side. And you can see it dripping down over the lens. And that's where Berthold Schwartz says in his book or in his pamphlet that he wrote, he could see the 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 thigh and breast and nipple of a woman the bir- the <laughs> crowning of a birth. baby's head Jesus and Christ. all these things and it was nothing more than spit running down the lens and being filmed it through it was just that. a Rorschach test basically. exactly right. way, keep in mind he's a Freudian psychologist oh yeah and to give the mac lab credit when peter phillips saw this he said it looks like a blob of water on the camera but Bertho said, yes, but it's what's in that blob that's important. <laughs> yes. Yes. It probably was part of his lunch, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> in that blob. Uh, you know what? Was there a process uh, when you were, uh, for lack of a better term, eating, eating all the poop after Project Alpha? A lot of people were upset. What, what do you do psychologically to get through that? And at some, at what point does it start, does it sting for how long? I think it hurt when Marcello Truzzi said, he came, he came out and he said, Hey, it's unethical. He brought up this, the hardest part at one point was when he brought up, is it ethical to fool scientists in the name of science? And his take on it was that it's really unethical to do that. And my take on that, and we both had answers, I think. I don't remember what yours was, but my, my take on that, is it ethical for scientists to take money in the name of science and not conduct proper science? Right. And not only that, Trevor Finch, I think it was Trevor Finch, uh, one of the parapsychologists before Project Alpha had said, hey, if you think you can introduce a magician in the laboratory, go ahead and do it. You won't be able to. So we were really right in line with what the parapsychologists were already saying themselves. I can't, I can't tell you right up front, I'm going to fool you and then show you things and say, this is how I would fool you because your rational mind will say, I wouldn't fall for that. Right. I, when, when Project Alpha was over and I was doing a series of lectures at uh, University of Northern Colorado for a friend of mine who was going through uh, her doctoral program and I would be brought up on stage. And the first time I did it kind of as a psychic debunker, I walked through these things and I showed them effects and they were like, that wouldn't have fooled us. And I realized that during my lectures, I had to recreate alpha. I needed to be introduced as a psychic. I need to ask them at the beginning, who believes in psychic phenomena? You might be get 25% that raised their hand, go through the whole thing, do a QA, then ask them, and 90% are now raising their hands, then pull the rug out from underneath them. I am Mike Edwards, but I am not a psychic. I'm a professional magician. Now do you have any questions? And of course, hands shoot up all over and I, I would show some of the uh, simpler effects. And that's really why we had to do it the way we did, because Geller didn't walk in and say, Watch this trick. I'm going to fool you. Right. He walked in as a true psychic. And the only way for us to get that same validation is to fool them, except knowing from our standpoint that we were doing it for the right reasons, that we were not doing it to really belittle them, but actually to prove a point that it was possible to be fooled 
even with a PhD. Yeah, I think Marcello Trussi also said, uh, you know, it's better off to teach them. And I'm like, no, I have like 10 ways of bending a key, depending on the keys that I'm using in the, uh, the situation. If I teach them two, three of those methods, they're going to think they know exactly how something's done. And a little bit of information is a bad thing. It can be dangerous because somebody else comes, does it a completely different way. They're going to say, well, I know the trick method. That has to be real. And going along with what Mike just said, I had a show called Telepathy. And the whole premise of the show is what is telepathy through the years? What has it been, you know, from uh, spirits talking and giving you information into your head to uh, electro waves, you know, to what Einstein believed it was. Freud believed it was related to dreams and, and Marie Curie believed in telepathy. And that whole first section of my show, the first half before we took intermission, I came on as if I was a genuine psychic. And why did I do that? Because I wanted the audience to have the same emotional feel that they would have if they went to a genuine psychic, because if they don't have that, they go, yeah, and they're going off their emotional experience. So I give them the same emotional experience. Second half of the show, I come out and I say, this is, you know, OBS, you know, mediums are scum. Why can I say that? And now I can talk about my past. I can talk about Project Alpha. I can go in these ways. And we have a way of getting information back from people. And we, for instance, one letter that I got from a lady, and it, it was fairly typical, but she said, my mom and I cannot talk about psychic phenomena. She believes I'm not a believer, and we get in these big fights every single time we talk about it, so we just stay away from it. But we decided to come see your show together. During intermission, my mom was saying, see, I told you it was real, and I started to doubt myself. I started to go, wait, maybe mom's right. And then you came out in the second half, and you told us that it was all BS. And my mom and I, we rode home and it was the first time we had a civil conversation wow. about this. We could actually talk about this from a, a critical thinking point of view. And to me, that was wonderful. That's great. That's wonderful. And it illustrates the point that we have to create a holy shit moment for people to, to let it sink in. Right. Um, you know, it's it's the con, you know, it's the sting. Uh, you think that you are following one story only to realize you're not following that. And people are a couple steps ahead of you um, is very important and very, very powerful to experience it, not just to hear about it. Right. And by the way, we could not have taught the tricks that we were doing because, damn it, we were making the shit up. As it was happening. Yeah. Right. So there's no way that, okay, here, here's a bell jar. Huh. I don't know, you know, or, or the, uh, uh, the wires or the fuse box yeah. or all of those things. It literally was us being opportunistic at the time and being able to exploit it. So it would have been hard to teach somebody. I have a thing in one of my books, psychological subtleties, and it's called the universal drawing. You might know it. Yes. It's a circle with this weird sort of a triangle, not even really a fully closed triangle. Yeah. It's one end missing of the triangle, but it comes to the point. So it's, and it's on there. And that came about because of Project Alpha. They said, all right, we're going to choose a word in the dictionary. And, you know, you, you draw what you think it might be. So I drew a circle and I drew that because I was like, you know, what could it be? And in my mind, in that moment, in that moment, this could be many things. Mm -hmm. It could be uh, a wheel. 
Um, it could be part of a flower, you know. And I went back to the things An that, ice cream cone. The type of things Gela threw back then in my head. It could be a bunch of ice cream cone. It could be a bunch a of A woman's breast, a nipple, <laughs> a crowning of a baby's head. <laughs> yeah, it could be. That's a, no, really, if you look at the way it's drawn, it could be those things. So it turned out to be a thumbtack. And it looks exactly like a thumbtack. That's great. But how do you explain that really, right? You say, well, I drew something I thought could be lots of things. They go, no, but it looks exactly like a thumbtack. Right. Here's... Here's the other thing that's very, very important. Randy always said that a magician should be there at those tests. And I disagree with that. It has to be a special, well-trained magician that, that can see this, because the, that can see through uh, the methods that we were using. Because the stuff we were doing and making up on the spot was not along the normal laws of magic that we would perform. We never walked in and said, okay, today I'm going to do X, Y, and Z because we had no idea what they were going to present to us. I think the only thing that we ever prepped is we had magnets and we had invisible thread. Invisible thread. And that those were the only things that we had on us. I do, I do have to tell you, this is a great story. Speaking of magnets, um, this is back. Again, in the 80s, you know, Mr. Cutting Edge over there with his knit tie and the whole nine yards. We're down at the museum at the Arch in St. Louis. He and I had some free time. Good that Arch. (laughs) (laughs) We're not talking about that. I'd be arrested now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cameras everywhere. Yeah. And, And we're down there and they have these big compasses that were what the riverboats used. And Banachek looks over at him and he goes, watch this. And he starts swinging his tie over, which had a magnet no in way. the bottom of it. And he's getting these huge compasses from the old steamboat or the <laughs> riverboat. I forgot about that. Yes, the riverboats to move across this. And people are like, oh, oh, look at that. And he just smugly walks off. And That's you know, amazing. Yeah, we I would can... do stuff like that. Move, uh, move uh, soda uh, glasses while we're out eating at McDonald's or something, move them across the table using the invisible thread. Uh, so one, one serendipitous thing happened after we finished principal recording on the podcast, I read for the first time, uh, John Ronson's book, the men who stare at goats. Mm. And I was taken by the fact that the beginning of the story starts in the summer of 1983. That's when the government begins several top secret psychic, Assassin mind control projects or whatever. And I was struck by the fact that the government began this journey three months, four months after you guys dunked on it. And it makes me wonder how, how satisfied are you guys with the legacy of project alpha? Does it feel like it accomplished as much as you had hoped? I'm not sure what we expected from it. I'm not sure that we expected all, um, parapsychological studies to just disappear. We never expected that. It was more about really, I think for us, or at least for me, it was more my anger at what Yuri Geller had got away with and that were people were actually falling for that. And if you want to study parapsychology, great, but do it properly. It was more about the shoddy work that was being done out there and put out to promote parapsychological beliefs and gullibility. So for me, it was more about that. I can't speak for Mike on that, but for me, that's really what it was about. 
And I think on some level, we ended up in almost every uh, psychology textbook in every university in the nation. Wow. Uh, there was a section on Project Alpha. But again, sometimes it was just that James Randi and two kids, you know, right. sometimes our names were mentioned, but quite often not. But the story about Project Alpha was there. And I think that was a lesson for people to go, oh, there could be somebody here. I need to use proper protocol. I need to really be careful because I don't want to end up in the same situation as Washington University, as the Mac Lab. The biggest frustration to me is you can do this. You can do uh, an event like Project Alpha and you can show people how they've been fooled, but that doesn't create a healthy skepticism in a lot of people. Uh, the belief in the paranormal or things along those lines has this rubber duck unsinkability that goes on. You know, uh, we think we did, we did great work, but you've got, you know, quacks like John Edward out there talking to the dead or homeopathy. beliefs in homeopathy or people that still read their horoscopes. Um, things along those lines where the skepticism isn't there. But I think that's also human nature. We want to think there's something more. We don't want to think that this life is just it. There has to be something. Is it crystals? Is it UFOs? Is it whatever else is that's out there? That's how energy continue and become something else. Right. That's, it, what is that? has I, meaning. Right. I want to know that there's something more than just I'm an ant in a very large colony. I'm going to grow up, get married, have a couple of kids and, you know, pass away in my 70s and haven't really left a mark on the world. Um, there is that search. And it's frustrating from our standpoint to hear some of those things and go, really? You truly believe that? Yeah. I never thought Project Alpha would end all of that. I was never, I never had that illusion of this is going to fix everything. I never thought that. But I did think that it would make some changes in the academia world. And it did. And it has. And so it succeeded with my expectations on that. Did I always hope it would do more? Absolutely. But my expectations were met. I'll tell you that right now, there is no real uh, parapsychological uh, laboratories that are open right now. There is still the Rhine uh, center in North Carolina. That's about the only one. And it, uh, I think it's Ryan is the one that built the, created the, the Zener deck, the, the, Zener the, deck. the, yep. the right. psychic it's symbols. Yep. Yeah. Yep. JB Ryan, a uh, number of years ago. Uh, well, boy, I want to say back in the thirties like or forties. Yeah. yeah. That, that long ago, Calls back when, you know, Banachek was probably 14. <laughs> um, it would made you what? <laughs> you know, don't ever 13. get me. Don't ever get me to hey. try to pick somebody's hor or uh, astrological sign. I, I still have I'm my still, hair, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I do too. It's uh, in a jar back home. It's uh, all on his back. <laughs> Let's talk about that time between the Syracuse conference and the Madison conference. When you guys are, everybody knows who you are, what you're up to. Your psychic stars are on the rise. And I have, I would have to imagine if it were me, some fleeting thoughts of maybe going to the dark side and getting a paycheck would occur to me. It's, it's, a, it's funny that you say that because in the Madison group, 
Walter Upoff and his wife, Mary Jo, and several of those people from, you know, Fellowship Farm and the, and the uh, uh, New Frontier Center. It didn't matter. That was kind of one of the parapsychologists that I worked with much more intensely than Banachek did. He was kind of focused on Berthold Schwartz at the time. I've always joked a little bit that I could have started my own church. Everything that I would tell people, there was like, oh, that's really insightful. Oh, my God, for a 19 or 20-year-old, you have deep thoughts. And yes, that's great. And all of these things. And it could have been, it could have been the same sort of almost cult-like following from these guys uh, over the years. Thank goodness that neither one of us uh, were raised that way. And we had very high ethical standards. Can can con men actually say we have high ethical standards? <laughs> I mean, that, that's our uh, favorite that, kind of con. <laughs> uh, I guess I, I guess so. Um, but that was there was there was a little fleeting moment, I think. Uh, didn't last very long, though, for me. For me, I came in trying to do the ethical thing. So there was never that moment. It was not about getting fame. I never thought about it that way. I thought about this as an academia-type experiment, right? I never thought, oh, I'm going to make millions off of this. I'm going to get famous. Never really thought about it that way. Not even once did I think about it that way. Um, yeah, it, it, it was. there were some interesting things that happened at that conference. I was even trying to Masawaki Kyoto spoke perfect English until uh, I had to share a room with him. And I said to him, hey, and I gave him an out. I said, do you ever cheat like when you can't get something to bend? All of a sudden, he couldn't speak English. <laughs> like, couldn't communicate with me in English at all. At that same conference, Mike and I were bending things on stage. And then afterwards, we had to sit down at the front while Yuri Geller, the king, came on stage. And he literally looked down at us and he said, these kids can do things that I can't. He, he said that. And then did, did he say it to cover his tracks in some way or because you actually fooled him? I, we were doing some things that he didn't know how to do. There, there were some things that Gala, Gala's bends were very plain, simple. And we were doing some things at this point that Gala didn't know how we were doing them. I, and he actually had an interesting thing with Mike where he says, I believe you, if you want to touch on that in a minute, Mike. But, um, he said that, but this was being taped for Magical Miracle, remember? And then when we came out during that special, uh, during the interviews and said it was all fake, they told Gella. And Gella said, I have never seen those kids before in my life. Now, they had footage of both. Wow. But what did they do? Magical Miracle. They wanted to have a whole nother season, not season, but do another special. And so they wanted to keep it maybe here. They said, but they could have blown Gella out of the water with that and said, look, Here's Geller a couple of weeks ago with these kids saying they can do things that he cannot do. I have a picture of you and I and Geller backstage, the three of us, and you've got your hand wrapped yeah. around his neck. Of course, he's flipping him off in the picture. <laughs> but am I? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've got that. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I'm going to have to yeah. see this picture. <laughs> I've, I've got that. In fact, it's in my office. Uh, at, the, at the hotel that we were at, uh, I happened to run into Geller. He had just come back from a run and we're in the hallway. And I said, oh, Mr. Geller, I'm Mike Edwards. Uh, I'm going to be on stage with you uh, tomorrow night or, or later tonight. I'm a metal bender as well. And he literally looks 
up and down the hallway to make sure that we're alone. He grabs my hand quickly and says, I believe you. I believe you. And takes off for his room. Huh. Did not want to get caught with me at all and didn't want to get into any sort of conversation. That's a weird phrase to just blurt out. Absolutely. Which, I'm a metal bender? <laughs> Hello, I'm the manager. I believe you. I believe I, you. I, that's exactly and run right. Away. And that was it. <clears throat> so I got something, but I'm almost afraid to say it because I could possibly be sued. Say it, and then we'll delete it if you change your mind. Well, I want to hear it now yeah. just because I need well, the money. Well, because we know Geller is Sue Happen. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, just start with the words, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not in my opinion. He actually <laughs> did it. So yeah, well, it's let's, let's he, hear it. It's something he did. But I'm the only person that can say he did it. So he can say that I'm lying, but I'm not. So I worked on a TV show called Phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was uh, Yuri Geller and Chris Angel who were the hosts. And they were looking for the next Yuri Geller. Geller calls me up out of the blue and says to me, hi, Banachek. Uh, you know, we have a conversation. He knows my past, but he's acting like kind of doesn't, but he does. And uh, we have a conversation and he says, you know, Banachek, I've only got about four things. I think it was four. I don't remember, maybe five things that I do that I've known for and I've been doing it forever. He said, but I understand that if anybody could come up with a new power for me, it would be you. So he was one, you, he was wanting you to consult for him to come up with this new power that he not a trick not a trick and i thought how ballsy is this because he called me out of the blue so no time to record it and he can just deny this phone call he can deny that the phone but then if i was that kind of person to jump on the bandwagon he would now have a new talent that he could actually do and I thought, how ballsy that, but I said, I said, Yuri, I, I could never do that. I said, also, um, you know, if you make any claims on the show, I'm going to be forced to call you out on those. Yeah. And, and he says, oh, 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 oh I, I don't make any claims anymore. Um, you know, I'm just looking for the next Yuri Geller. And he talked and went on a little bit. And then he finally said to me, he said, but you know, I did find oil. And I say, Yuri, <laughs> he said, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And I have seen him a few times since I went to his house. We've got one other quick Yuri story. If you want to hear Please. it. I don't, yeah. So I, I, I went to his house on the Thames, very cordial, very nice to me. And I was there with a guy by the name of Ian Rowland. So Ian and I are there at his house and we're outside and Yuri takes me to his garage where he's got this, I think it's a Cadillac. I don't remember what kind of car it is, but it's this big car and it's got spoons bent by the Pope and by, it's got hundreds of spoons all over this car, right? You can, you can, you can find it online. And he says to me, Banachek, you must bend a, a fork for me to put on the car. And we're standing by a tree and around the tree, there's just like a stack of silverware outside around the tree like in a ring it just just laying all around it you know how most people put chips of wood around their tree no he's decorative got, rocks it's he's just got decorative cutlery. <laughs> cutlery around it now keep in mind he's facing me he's facing ian ian is on my right on my left there is a small and it's a little off to the side there's a stone table yuri has to turn away from me to reach down to get a spoon behind him and gives it to me i bend it and I can tell he's a little bit impressed, but he's seen a lot of metal bending. So, but I can tell he's a little bit impressed. Uh, then he, he says, Ian, you should bend one for me too. And I, in front of him, put this, and I have to lean way over to put it on the stone table next to me. 
he says, Ian, you should bend one for me too. You know, sort of as a bit of an afterthought because Ian's been to his house a few times in the past. He turns around and I'm like a gazelle. I don't think I could ever do it the same way that I did it then. I reach over to the stone table, put a much bigger bend in the spoon. Even Ian, who was next to me, didn't see me do it. It was just done so quickly and so smoothly. And it was done in that emotion of Geller turning around, picking it up and coming right back up. And as he goes to end it to Ian, he sees out of the corner of his eye, this stone table that's far enough away from me that it would be difficult for me to get to, in his opinion. Right. And he sees that that spoon is bent more. And he goes, oh, my God, look, it's bent more. And I know in his head he wants to say, how the fuck did you do that? <laughs> but he can't. <laughs> but he can't do that because he has to pretend that it's he's real. Like, he's like, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You were not impressed because psychic powers are real. Right. But now you are impressed because that. they're slightly more real. And that is the question many people have for me. They say, do you ever think Geller will come out and say he, he was a fake or fraud? And I don't think he ever could because there's been a lot of lawsuits. There's been a lot of back and forth. And he's based his entire reputation on that. The closest he will ever come, and he has come to it, is saying, if I was a magician, I'm the greatest one ever. <laughs> that, sounds, but, that sounds about as humble as I can imagine Yuri Geller being. But in 2023, I think it's now a question of, Uri who? Yes. You know, it's yeah. not the 70s and 80s anymore. Yeah. Although and, we do still have that enduring image of a spoon bending. I mean, you even, do see that in, you yep. know, in the matrix. And right. So on. Yeah, I was going to use that. Same and in the example, UK, you do see in that. the UK, people know who he is because he predicts the outcomes of soccer games once in a while, you know, he stopped big Ben back in the day. And, um, you know, he still makes it when it's a slow news day, he'll make something that's in the mirror all the time, you know, or the telegraph or something like that over there, you know? So he does once in a while get in there. He's moved to Israel now is my understanding and just kind of like sort of retiring. Uh, but he did have those next year, Yellows all over Europe for quite a while. Hmm. And he's very well known on QVC as well. On QVC? <laughs> he sells, he sells he watches. Sells that, minerals. No, watches he sells that, watches that he's put his energy into. Wow. I believe, I, I believe that's what the watch is. <laughs> it's something like that. Holy moly. It could be a little wrong on that, but it is something like All that. Right, man, welcome to this week on Dancing with a Lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as, as we wrap it up, do you guys have any th final thoughts or, or uh, where, where would you like to see the legacy of Project Alpha go? I think it, uh, I think it stands by itself. But what I really want to say is I want to thank you guys for taking the time and really getting beyond the story and getting into the human side of it. The, the toll that it took on both of us, as well as the people that were victims of our fraud, um, that gets, that gets passed over. And as I've said before, I know that from my standpoint, Knowing what I know now, the reveal that we had that we did with Discover Magazine would have been handled radically different. And and the question there probably would be for people: How would that be handled different? And I have my answer. What what would your answer be on that, Mike? That's a great question. I would I would notify Schwartz, Upoff, Phillips, everybody at the Mac Lab shortly before all of this was going to come out. Yep. To say. This is what happened. This is why we did it. You are going to hear in the next 48 hours 
the full story coming out, but I want you to be aware. That's exactly my answer on that as well. I don't think anybody could have foreseen the effects that this would have had from the beginning because it was just black and white to everybody. It was black and white to me. It was black and white to Mike. It was black and white to Randy. And I think there was a bit of a toll for everybody on that. Myself, Mike, especially, um, the scientists, even more so the parapsychologists, more so than even us. Um, and probably a little bit of toll on Randy on some level. I would think, um, there was a lot of back and forth and things and, but I don't think anybody could have, like I said, I don't think anybody could have seen the toll that it would take behind the scenes. And you guys have really brought that to light. And, and you've done it in an absolutely brilliant way as well. Well, uh, thank very you both for trusting us. And I'm very, very pleased you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much for this journey. Uh, hopefully, people at home are going to send in more questions. So I may hit you guys up for some specific answers. But uh, thank you. What a journey, Project Alpha. This episode of World's Greatest Con is written by Justin Robert Young and me, Brian Brushwood, your humble host. Production and research by Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas, with additional production by Will Saddleberg. Original music by Carson Pace. Support us directly and keep the world's greatest cons coming by heading on over to patreon.com slash greatest con. Get an ad-free feed, early access to information, and behind-the-scenes extras. Very special thanks go to Banachek and Mike Edwards for allowing us to tell their story. We greatly encourage you to see Banachek's new show, Mind Games, at the Strat Hotel and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. Additional thanks go to George Slatter Productions, which, along with contemporary news articles, retrospectives, and archive videos, made for the bulk of our research. Of course, you have questions, and we want to answer as many as we can, so hit us up and we'll respond at the end of the season. Write us to worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. On the next episode, it's all about you. We answer all your questions. Write us now at worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com, and we'll get to as many as we can. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.